guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 11. If you have phone apps, you can swipe open. As you guys are opening, Jason did just a tremendous job being a pastor to us uh, in the musical portion of our, our proclamation of God's truth. And he mentioned the fact that this season of ministry, we've really been leaning into the idea of being a banquet for the broken, that all of us are these, like these imperfect uh, jars or, or vases that have scratches and cracks all over. And then just, rather than painting over what we do as believers, we just let the light of Jesus shine through us. And we lean in to the fact that we're all broken and the fact that Jesus can do tremendous ministry through broken vessels. Uh, I thought he did a great job with that a little bit uh, earlier in the musical portion. And one of the ways that we demonstrate being a banquet for the broken and the people who are, who are broken and letting the light of Christ shine through us is in the way we build relationships. And relationships are so crucial to one of the things we're going to talk about here today. And to set everything up, uh, over the next two weeks, I just want you guys to know we're leaning towards Easter. Easter is happening in uh, just a few, uh, few weeks. It's so close. I'm, I'm just surprised. It's almost here. But the, the thing or the idea at the center of Easter is this idea called the resurrection. And over the next two weeks, I want to really address the question, what is the resurrection? And what does that mean for us? How does that impact us in a significant way uh, today in our lives, in our everyday lives? And so to kind of start down that path, what I want to do is uh, address the question today. And I'll set it up by talking about this. Uh, Many of you know, if you've been around us for a while, that uh, when, when I first moved here, uh, part of being on staff at our church uh, is that pastors are required to do some self-care and some self-check-in to get life coaching. Uh, and so I went to go see a counselor when I first got here. And just a long story short, just, you know, my parents got a divorce when I was in eighth grade, and I never went to counseling after that. I just kind of, you know, because I'm a man and I'm a Texan, and so I'm just like, I don't need counseling. I'll just work harder and eat red meat, and we'll be fine, right? Uh, so uh, that was eighth grade, right? Um, I went to college, I got married, I went to uh, grad school, I went to secondary grad school, I was in school until I was 31, uh, you know, just grind, grind, grind. I worked for a couple of different churches, was part of a couple of different churches, had some good experiences, uh, like many of you, had some really bad experiences in some churches, uh, had some wounds that I hadn't really addressed in my life and just kind of kept grinding. Again, if I'll just work hard and eat red meat, everything will be okay. And uh, when I got here, they just said, listen, for everybody we say this, but for you, we really think you should go see a life coach. And so I began going weekly to go see a counselor. Uh, But I'm a man, so we don't call it counselor, we say life coach. Uh, And so um, I went, and about, I don't know, four or five meetings in, my kind of life coach looks at me, and he goes, Doug, you just seem resistant to this. And I was like, I am very resistant to this. I don't want to talk about my feelings. I don't want to talk about my hurts. Uh, it's not that I don't think there's value in that. I just, I, I don't know. I just, I, I was resistant. I was hesitant to being vulnerable in that kind of setting. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, well, aren't you a Christian? And I said, yes, obviously, right? I'm from Texas, right? I mean, just that's one-to-one correspondence there. Uh, and he, he said, well, as a Christian, don't you believe in the resurrection? And I looked at him and I said, what in the world does the resurrection have to do with my being resistant to counseling? And he just kind of went, well, let me tell you about that. I think about that when I think about the resurrection in our daily lives because I wonder if maybe my story isn't 
familiar to your story. Have you ever been in, in a moment in life where you know God's calling you to do something? He's challenging you to step out in faith in a particular area of your life or in a particular season of your life, and you find yourself resistant to what God may be doing. And if I were to tell you today that the resurrection actually has implications for everything that God wants you to do uh, in your life, uh, I wonder if you, like me, would go, well, what does that have to do with my resistance to what God is doing? Maybe for you, God is telling you it's time for you to join community, either in a group or in a team around here. And you know it's the thing you need to do, but you're just a little bit resistant. Or maybe God is telling you that it's time to start practicing regular compassion and serving our city. You know that's the next step, but maybe you're just a little bit resistant. Or maybe God is calling you to get serious about your spiritual life and your devotional life. Or maybe God is... uh, Uh, prompting you to be more intentional about evangelism in your workplace or in your neighborhood or with your friend group. Or maybe he's telling you to do something that just sounds really crazy, and if you said it out loud, you're like, it sounds like God's telling me to do this, but uh, I think the best thing to do is just to resist the Holy Spirit, right? You're just a little bit resistant here today. Maybe that's where you are. Well, here's the good news. I want to tell us all that the resurrection is not just this thing we talk about on Easter and then forget the rest of the year. The resurrection has tremendous significance for our daily lives. And I think if we could really come to understand everything that Jesus meant when he talked about the resurrected life, we might find that it may be the thing, the single thing that empowers us to break through whatever barrier is keeping us from taking hold of God's best for our life. And so that's where I want to go this evening. So with your Bibles open to John 11, let's jump in. We're going to see what God says about this issue. John 11. It's the story of Lazarus, if you know this. Uh, Jesus has already been talking about the resurrection in John, at least two times prior to this passage. And um, his followers know this and know Jesus' ministry and There's this family that's particularly of importance to the disciples. It's Mary, it's Martha, and it's their brother Lazarus. They're early disciples. Lazarus has died. And word gets to Jesus that Lazarus is dead. And the sisters are in grieving. And Jesus uh, waits a few days and then comes into town where they live in Bethany and says, you know, I'm here. He shows up. He's in the setting of like a funeral or like a wake maybe like a viewing kind of situation. And this is the context we find ourselves in in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. This is why this is significant. Let me just mention the numbers. In Jewish thought and rabbinical teaching, uh, they kind kind of surmised that when someone dies, their spirit, kind of their soul, just hovers around their body for three days. And so there's like this possibility that something could happen in that three day period. But by day four, it kind of went off to heaven. And so there was no possibility of any kind of resurrection or miraculous stuff to happen. And so what you can expect is that in this viewing, in this wake, in this funeral they're having, everyone there is kind of understood. They, they, they kind of understand that the cultural expectation is we don't expect any magic to happen here today. So once Jesus shows up, they're kind of like, well, you know, if you'd gotten here two days ago, we'd be fine. But it's day four. So there's just kind of this sense that, 
Everything's lost with this person. It's just going to be this way. It's the way it is. That's why that's significant there. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here earlier, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, Jesus sees this, he knows she's a follower, and he says, he's about to go, okay, you've kind of communicated to me this cultural expectation, you've regurgitated back to me what I've already been teaching, so I'm going to kind of test you a little bit. You guys ever have that moment with Jesus where you've learned something in vacation Bible school or in student ministry or you're watching a television preacher or whatever, and you've kind of learned something, and then later in a conversation, it comes up? You know you're in maybe a small talk situation where someone's talking about Christianity and you go, oh, I remember this nugget, this little fact. And you decide to make a point. You're like, yes, I actually know about this. And then everyone turns to you and they're like, mm, right? Well, this is that moment for, for Martha. She's like, she's like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to drop truth bombs back on you. They're your truth bombs, but I'm going to regurgitate them here for you to let you know that I'm up to speed with where you are because I kind of got you figured out at this point. Here's where we are. Verse 22, I'm sorry. Verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And so he's now saying back to her, yes, your brother will rise again. Now notice her response in verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, I know that you've taught that at the end of all of history, when history gets consummated, there's going to be a bodily resurrection of all the saints. I, I know he's going to do that on the last day, but what she's not saying, what she's assuming is, right now it's hopeless because it's day four. And so there is no way you could ever work on day four. Those are her expectations. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, and this is the important verse, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And now she has, she's confronted with something new. And in verse 27, she says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I want you all to notice three things that are happening here in this passage. Because they have bearing on the resurrection and our understanding of its significance in our daily life. And the first one's this, that the resurrection is not primarily an event. The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is not primarily an event. It's a person. When they're talking about the resurrection, Mary's saying, uh, I mean, Martha's saying, I know this is going to happen. This event's going to happen like way down the line, kind of at the end of times when like deep magic comes back and all this stuff happens. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection. I think for many of us, we tend to think about the re resurrection and on Easter, we primarily celebrate sometime in about 33 AD when this man named Jesus of Nazareth, this historical figure died and allegedly rose from the dead. And that's that one event. Maybe if we've been to church long enough and we've read our Bibles and done our theology homework, we also know that there is this end event that's going to happen. But we tend to think about it as primarily this, this one event that everything in, in, in uh, Christianity hangs on. And what Jesus has just told us is, yeah, while that may be true, it's not merely just an event. The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is Jesus. He's the resurrection. 
And in saying that, he's communicating so much more. He's expanding the concept of what this idea of the resurrection is. And, and let me just kind of make that a little more plain here to us here today. Um, I'm of the opinion when I talk to people that for most of us, the way we learn theology in the Bible is we kind of get to this point where we, we learn about the history of the resurrection and we kind of think in this sequential order. We say, Jesus rose from the dead and therefore because of that, he's God and has power. And the sequence almost communicates this. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, he wouldn't be God, right? I mean, and we, we kind of see that his resurrection was kind of this thing that happened, and that event marked his lordship, as if he couldn't do any of that prior to the resurrection. Like, maybe he somehow didn't have that power before the resurrection, but maybe he gained this power after the resurrection. And we kind of think about it in those terms, which is a perfectly fine way of thinking about things. But if John 11 is true, then it means this. Um, Jesus doesn't have power because he rose from the dead. Jesus had power, and therefore he rose from the dead. In other words, Jesus was the resurrection long before he resurrected. He caused the resurrection to happen because he is the resurrection. The resurrection is an, it's a, it's an, uh, it's a received action from who Jesus is. All that resurrection power is contained in who he is, which means it's something far more than just a singular event or just an event that's going to happen at the end. It's a whole nother deal here. And that's the second point I want us to see here, that Jesus performs multiple resurrections. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Jesus, the Bible tells us, performs multiple resurrections. Let's just think about this. Number one, he resurrects Lazarus from the dead. That's what he does in the following passages here, the following verses. He brings Lazarus back to life. So he resurrects Lazarus. That's a resurrection. He resurrects himself while he's dead back from the dead. So while he's ceased, he still has power enough to resurrect himself. That's a pretty baller move right there, right? That's just, that's pretty incredible. Number three, we know that at the end of time, he's going to resurrect all of the saints, bodily form. Everyone's going to come out up from the grave. We all arise and we're going to go to heaven and then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So that's at least three of them. But the whole of the Bible seems to suggest that not only does Jesus do those three events, he also brings resurrection in every believer's life. He is constantly bringing resurrection in our lives, uh, in all areas of our lives. It's incredible. And that leads us to the third point here, that Jesus teaches resurrection as a way of life. Because Jesus says, not just I'm the resurrection, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Or in other words, I am the resurrection life. The kind of life that I bring is a re resurrection power kind of life. So what does this mean that Jesus brings this kind of resurrection way of life? Uh, you can think about it maybe as this paradigm. It's this thing that it's a lens we can look through to kind of understand the whole of what Jesus is doing. Now, if you guys remember the, the eternal life that Jesus brings, we've talked about it in past weeks as being like a ray in math. If you guys, maybe some of you are like, I don't do math, but just stay with me. It has a beginning point and then it extends on into eternity. That's a ray. That's that kind of, it's like a dot and then an arrow that goes that way, if you ever remember that in math. Uh, and, and that's a good uh, uh, mathematical charting of what this is. The eternal life that Jesus brings starts in us when we're converted and born again. And that eternal life extends into heaven, into the afterlife. 
And Jesus is saying this resurrection starts primarily in your soul at this one point and then extends into every area of your earthly life and then into your heavenly life, into eternity. The resurrection life is something he's always doing, constantly doing. And one of the ways it manifests itself is when he resurrects our body. In other words, let's put it this way. What Jesus did to Lazarus bodily, he was already doing in Lazarus, uh, Lazarus invisibly in terms of his mind, in terms of his soul, in terms of his emotions. Resurrected life is this way of life that Jesus brings. It's something he offers to us to embrace, to step into in the way we live our lives. Let me give you a cross-reference here, and one I think you guys may be familiar with. The Apostle Paul is writing on this exact idea much later in the, in the second letter he writes to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, here's what he says, and it's going to be on your screen. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The, behold, the new has come. In other words, people who are in Christ, Christians, saints, they are part of this paradigm, this way of life, where the old life is passing away and the new life is coming. And this is not just a corporate thing where we say everybody here is you know, they, they die to themselves and they're born again and then they just kind of live this life. No, there's this thing that's happening all the time, this power that Jesus has, this, this strength, this ability to constantly uh, put our old life to death and to bring about new life. It's a resurrected way of life. And it brings us to this big idea here. If you get one thing today, I want you to get this. Jesus's resurrection power is at work in us as our old life is passing away and our new life is coming to be. Let me say that again. Jesus' resurrection power is at work in us as our old life is passing away and our new life is coming to be. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your life and your being as a human being. You've got your mental component of your being. You've got your emotional component of your being. You've got your spiritual, invisible kind of soul component of your being. You've got your physical component of your being. And if this is true in John 11, then what it means is that when you become a Christian, when you and I become Christians, Jesus is beginning this resurrection process in us in every area of our life. Every uh, mental part of us, the resurrection power is at work, which is why Paul later on in Romans 12 can say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's renewing of your mind? It's laying down the old way of thinking and beginning to see Jesus's power and invitation in the new way of thinking. He's bringing his resurrection power into your emotions. It's laying down the old way of feeling about things that's incorrect and bringing about a new Christ-centered way of feeling about things. When I was in counseling, one of the uh, and I was in it for about 18 months. One of the main things that my life coach worked with me was feeling, because he said, Doug, you're kind of a robot. And I said, thank you very much. Uh, like, yes, I'm a man. And he's like, no, 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 that's a, maybe a, a bad conception. And I was very resistant to talking emotionally about things, but he would just constantly point out that I'm actually feeling emotions, I'm just unaware of them, and that that actually doesn't make me any more alive. It makes me more dead. And that what, when he asked me about the resurrection question, he said, what Jesus wants to do is, is put to death your old way of feeling about things and instead bring new life, bring resurrection power into your emotions and help you to feel uh, the way you should as a human being. That it's okay for me to have feelings, to be scared, to be happy, to be sad, all these things. 
Uh, and uh, it was a really tremendous kind of process for me to go, oh, I don't have to be a robot all the time. And he's like, yes, right? Um, and this is what Jesus wants to do. But not only in our mind and in our you know, spiritual lives and our emotions, but also in our, uh, our physical bodies, one day, ultimately, he's going to raise us from the dead. And in our per- interpersonal relationships. And so let me just give you a really practical example of resurrection power at work. In my life, I became a Christian when I was 16. You guys know my story. Um, and if you'd ever talked to anybody in my town about Doug Hankins at age, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, they would have said, oh, that really pagan kid from that atheist family, there is no chance in Hades that guy is ever going to go to church, right? And just, I mean, there's a couple of cultural reasons for this, but there's also some spiritual reasons. Let me get a drink of water and I'll tell you this. So keep in mind, I grew up in Houston. I'm in this big town. I was a skater. Uh, I'm listening to like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins and all this stuff. Uh, And then there's this new thing that happens in the late 80s, early 90s called rap music. And I'm an early adopter of rap music. Now, early on, it's MC Hammer, it's Vanilla Ice. Just be cool, right? But soon after, we've got Snoop and we've got, you know, um, well, I won't mention the album here because we're in church, but Dr. Dre and some other things. And I'm an early adopter. I'm like all in. And I moved to deep East Texas, which is basically like Kissimmee St. Cloud. And no offense to Kissimmee St. Cloud, but it's like, it's like a redneck kind of world. And I mean that with all admiration. Like it's dudes and wranglers. And I, I tell everybody this all the time. I got to my first class, third, fourth grade. And the question that people would ask me all the time is, hey, Doug, which Garth Brooks song is your favorite song? Uh, and so just keep in mind, I'm wearing like a Weird Al Yankovic t-shirt that's tie-dyed and some cut-off shorts that are down to here and some Doc Martin boots. And I've got a Chili Bowl haircut. And I'm like, I don't know who Garth Brooks is. Like, I don't know what any of this is. And they're like, when you go hunting, what kind of gun do you like to use? And I'm like, I don't own a gun. I don't know what this is. And they're like, you know, on, in the football team, do you want to play quarterback, wide receiver? And I'm like, I don't play football, right? I run cross country. And they're like, cross country, why do you run? And I'm like, I like to run. And they're like, I would tell them, I like to skateboard. You guys want to go skateboarding later? And they're like, it's really hard to skate, uh, skateboard on asphalt. This was like the culture that I was in. And so um, everyone knew me as the weird pagan skater kid that just was like in his own head about everything. And he was maybe really smart or really curious, but... There is no way that guy was going to be a good, Jesus-loving, conservative-voting, gun-toting, NASCAR-watching Christian, which is what, by and large, my whole town was. No disrespect. I love you if you're that. But that was my town. So everybody looks at me, and if you'd have asked them when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, here's what they would have said. There is no chance in Hades Doug Hankins is ever going to become a Christian. There's no chance. That guy is bound for hell. So what happened there? Jesus' resurrection power started working in my life, first spiritually, uh, and then emotionally, or then uh, mentally, and then physically, you know, and then emotionally. And then when I became a Christian, I started working on my dad. My dad is at the time 50 years old, and he's an atheist. And if you'd asked me at 16, is there any possibility that my dad would have ever become a Christian, I would have told you there is no way That is something that's dead. It's not possible. He is Lazarus on the fourth day. It's not happening. Uh, But you guys know that when my dad, very shortly after that, about the time I turned 20, my dad became a Christian. It was incredible. And I was like, I I can't believe this. 
I've had relationships in my life. You guys get to this way where you, you're best friends with somebody and then things sour and you go the, bad, you go the wrong direction and now you're frenemies, right? You just, you used to be friends, but now you're not. And if someone asks you about that person, you're like, there's no way we can ever restore our relationship. But here's the thing. If Jesus' resurrection power is at work, then guess what? He can resurrect that friendship. It won't be the old friendship. It'll be a new friendship centered around Christ. His resurrection power is not only changing our spirits and our minds and our hearts, but also our relationships and ultimately one day our bodies. The big idea here is that Jesus' resurrection power is at work in us as our old life is passing away and our new life is coming to be. So, if this is true, then we need to get practical here. What might it look like, if this is true, what might it look like in my life if I began embracing this resurrected life? Let's say you're here today and you go, okay, Doug, I think, I think the logic of Scripture is pretty clear that, uh, that the resurrection, the resurrected life, it's not just an event, it's a person, it's Jesus. And therefore, if I have Jesus living in me, and then he's constantly doing this resurrection stuff, then maybe he wants to bring resurrection in all areas of my life, and then one day he's going to resurrect my body, uh, and we're going to go to heaven, right? Let's say I believe that's true. Then what, is, what, what does it mean for me sitting in a chair today, driving home on I-4 or to 408 or wherever you go, getting home today? And I think it means at least two things for us here, as I just think about y'all, because I love y'all, as I think about y'all, uh, and I think about this. I think it, it, it basically means starting and stopping something. And so number one, I think it means we would stop asking Jesus to bless our old life. Sorry, I was trying to cover it up for the drink here, but yeah, apologies. Uh, I think it means we would start at, uh, stop asking Jesus to bless our old life. You guys know people who do this. This is the way we can talk about ourselves without talking about ourselves. You, all, you guys all have friends who do this, right? Okay, we cool? Uh, Maybe it's been part of your life, but you have friends who do this, where um, the, the classic example is it's the guy dating the girl and the girl dating the guy or whatever, and, you know, all the girlfriends are like, that guy's no good for you, and she's like, no, 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 I'm going to flirt to convert, and da-da-da-da, uh, missionary dating, <coughs> and um, your whole girlfriend's like, no, 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 and that girl goes home, or anytime you have life group or whatever, hold on for a second, anytime <coughs> you have life group, that girl says, I just want you to pray for him. I want you to pray for our relationship, that Jesus would be at the center of it. All the while, you know, he's, or he's not a Christian and, like, has wants nothing to do with Jesus and her church. And she's a Christian and, like, loves Jesus. And her prayer constantly becomes, Jesus, would you bless our relationship? You guys know this, right? You guys have seen this before. Or maybe for you... Like, maybe you're kind of one of the dudes here, and you kind of have this, like, secret life that goes on, and the way you kind of, in a lonely way, deal with your own sexuality. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to spell out all the words, but right? Uh, right? And uh, your constant prayer when you're around your guys or when you're by yourself is, hey, Jesus, could you just really bless my sexuality? Like, I really want to see this come to fruition, right? Or um, the, uh, another classic one is you, you feel God leading you to go on a diet, and then you sit down over a large cheese pizza and you pray for the food. You're like, Jesus, would you bless this to the nurse from my body? 
Uh, all the while you know, like, there's no way that fits your macros at all, right? Like, it just, there's no way you're going to ingest the pizza and it's suddenly going to become like salad to your body, right? It's just, it's not happening, right? And we do this all the time in all these areas of our lives. We say, hey, this old thing that you're leading me away from, Jesus, this old way of thinking, this old way of feeling, this old relationship, this old thing, this thing that was part of my former life when I was dead and my trespasses and sin, Jesus, could you bless it? Could you just bless this? Because what I don't want to do is have to change what I'm doing. Because change is, is painful and it's scary and I'm afraid. <clears throat> and I think what Jesus is calling us to do here is, number one, that we would stop asking Jesus to bless our old life. And instead, what, he, what we do is we would begin to anticipate Jesus bringing new life in every area of our being and our doing. That Jesus would begin uh, bringing new life in every area of our being and our doing. What does that mean? Again, I just want you to imagine right now every area of your life. I want you to imagine it's like a grid. I mean, you can close your eyes or whatever. But if you just like a, did a grid of your body, a grid overlay, and you're like, okay, there's this area of my life. There's my work life, my friend life, my style life, the clothes I wear, my social media life, my uh, home life, my, my work life my real work friends life and my fake work friends because I need a promotion life, right? That whole thing, maybe my school life, uh, my financial life, which is currently red, right? Uh, right? What, however you think about every area of your life, your music life, your movies life, your culture, your arts, your, just the whole of you, okay? And imagine they all get this grid in your body somewhere. And you begin to ask this question, Jesus, what might it look like for you to bring resurrection in every grid of my life? What would that look like? What would it look like for you to put to death old things in this component of my life and to bring newness of life, something I couldn't even imagine? What would it look like for you to make the old things pass away in that area of my life and bring new things in that area of my life? I think the second action step is, we would step is that we would begin to anticipate and actually begin to pray for Jesus to reveal that to us. There's, um, there's this way of thinking, just kind of a paradigm, a theological paradigm for thinking about all the way God interacts with humanity. Uh, and it goes like this. God's primary job is to be the initiator and sustainer of everything we do in life. God initiates. Our job, our responsibility as human beings is not to initiate anything. We don't initiate things with God. He's sovereign, we're not, right? Um, and so we don't ever initiate prayer to God. We don't go, hey, God, uh, I, have a, I have this friend, and they're not a Christian, and could you save them? And God's like, oh, man, oh, that's a good prayer. I didn't even think about that. Cool. Uh, well, hold on a second. Let me create a reminder here. One second. God picks up his phone. Siri, remind me to save that person tomorrow, right? Uh, it's not like, and he's like, hey, good job. High five you, right? It's not like God is receiving this action from us. God is always initiating our job is to cooperate with what God's doing. God initiates, we cooperate. God initiates, we cooperate. God tells us what to do, we hear it, and then we, we, we're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. We're cooperating with him. And so what would it look like if in your life God started initiating things over here? Hey, in this little section over here, hey, I am, I'm doing some resurrection stuff over here. I want to resurrect that part of your life. What would it look like for him to resurrect your personal relationships? to resurrect your work relationships, to resurrect your thinking in this particular area, to resurrect your view of movies and culture and film, uh, to resurrect the way you approach food and diet, to resurrect the way you approach working out, to resurrect the way you think about banking and giving and 
um, and all that stuff. What would it look like for that to happen? This is the question I think Jesus asks us. And as I've been thinking about that, I've kind of been asking the question, have I ever seen a time where a group of Christians actually lived out this resurrected life in a way that was meaningful? And what was that like? And I can't help but think about um, my church in Waco. Um, I was part of a church called Highland Baptist Church in Waco. And uh, just to give you, it's a quirky, quirky congregation. Um, we met in an, in an octagonal room. And it was like an octagon. It was like a UFC fight every time. I mean, it was super crazy. Just, it was this crazy acoustics, old school wood panels everywhere. That was our kind of worship space. And in the 70s, Highland got swept up in this, uh, uh, in this charismatic movement. And so they were known as High Hands Baptist Church because they were like this Baptist church that was like, what's going on with my hands? Like Ricky Bobby style, like, oh, I'm praising Jesus now, right? And so they, they jumped into the charismatic movement there. It was, it was super cool. Uh, to be a part of. Uh, I got there in the late 90s, but they had gone into the charismatic movement in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and it was just this amazing congregation. Um, And the best way I could describe Highland to you guys is that the most, without a doubt, the most zealous, active, uh, jumping around, shaking, tambourine playing, streamer waving, uh, demonstrative worshipers, the most hardcore evangelists who would go door-to-door knocking on doors, sharing the gospel people, the people who gave the most, who were the most generous to support things, who would give you the shirt off their back. By and large, the people group in our church that was that way was the old, old, old people, like lily-white hair old people in, like, walkers. This was the most charismatic, the most zealous it was, it was this congregation that was super weird because young people, we had like a thousand college students there and we didn't feel like we could keep up with the old people. You'd walk into a worship service and you'd go towards the front and the old people would be like, Forrest Gump style, like, no, nah, I can't sit here, right? They're like, this is, this is our mosh pit right now. And so youngins, don't you come into this mosh pit because I have a cane and I will bust you upside the head. If you're not ready to really worship Jesus with your body, don't come in here, like, right? And, like, seriously, like, they would just be sitting there in the front row, just like the organ would be playing, like, old school Baptist style, and they would just be reading the bulletin and kind of, hmm, that's nice. And then they would start off with the worship music, one, two, three, four, dumb, right? They play the progressive worship music. The old people would, like, stand up, start rocking around, bumping into each other, and just, like, and it was, we out. I remember the first time that I was there as a call student, I was like, what just happened? Like, oh my goodness. Like they were crazy. They loved worshiping the Lord, kind of full on hands, whatever, because a lot of those people, they were 20 somethings in the seventies or sixties. And now they were kind of in their fifties, sixties, right now. And they were ready to go. And I would go to their Sunday school classes or I would go to their life groups and it would be like super intense because I would go visit and I would sit down and they're like, hey, we have a visitor here today. His name is Doug. Doug, the way we start is that we're going to pray for visitors. So why don't you get in the middle? And I was like, oh no, what's happening here? And they would all stand up and lay hands on me and they would just start praying in tongues over me. And I would just be like, what are these words that are going on here? And they would pray for an hour, y'all. No kidding. And they'd be weeping and crying and they would just like be praying for me to be delivered from whatever was going on. And I would just be like, what is happening here? And these folks were the most generous people uh, I knew. They would regularly support people to go on mission trips. I mean, college students had no problems going, finding funding to go on mission trips because our legacy adults at that time period were the most generous people in the church. Our church was always over 
um, the giving was always over what the needs were. For like 20 years in a row or 25 years in a row, they just had this war chest because they just gave and gave and they supported tons of churches and they planted tons of churches and they supported, supported tons of ministries uh, going around. And these people loved to just like praise Jesus wherever they were. Um, I may have told this, but at, at one point, the, the kind of belief system among this, this life group uh, of like 80-year-olds was that it was normative that if you really believed in Jesus, that he would make you levitate. And they were legitimately organizing a rally to drive to the interstate to get out, to start walking, to see if they could levitate over uh, semis who were coming. Like that was happening. Like there's old people boarding a bus uh, with like, they had the wheelchair thing, beep, beep, like loading the bus to go try to practice levitation. And, And here's the thing. These people are like, hey, if we think God is telling us to do that, we're going right now. I'm telling you guys, these people were full on committed to who Jesus was and the the 50-year-olds could not keep up with them and the 40-year-olds could not keep up with them and the 30-year-olds could not keep up with them and the 20-year-olds for sure couldn't keep up with them. And I'm telling you, it was the the most amazing thing at Highland. The most amazing thing was to go to a funeral when one of those saints died. Um, We went in like, I don't know, 2012, uh, one of our mentors passed away and it's this packed house. It's a lot of blue hairs and white hairs there. And they got up the, and this this is a very interesting time. They got up, the guy got up and he's like, hey, I want to introduce this new song. I think it was Good, Good Father. Maybe that was it. Uh, It's like, I want to introduce this new song called Good, Good Father. All the young people are loving singing it. You guys have heard that song before? Maybe, okay. And I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be weird. This is the wrong crowd. You need like some old school hymns or whatever. And the guy got up singing and all the old people stood up and they just started leaning into it and going. And I was like, God bless this church. Like these are the greatest people in the world. Funerals are lit, son. Let me tell you, because these people, they just, they have experienced a lifetime of Jesus resurrecting every square inch of their lives. The resurrection for them is not just something they hope for one day. It's something they experience every day of their lives in every area. And God is constantly molding them more and more into his likeness. And they're seeing deliverance and breakthrough in every area of their lives. And they've stopped long ago resisting the way that the spirit is moving in them. Why? Because when you see resurrection power work in one area of your life, it gets addicting. And you're like, I need it in another area of my life. It works over here in my left leg. I'm going to take some more of that in my right leg. Come on now. Like, oh, it's working in my legs. Ooh, can it come into my arms? Why do you think people who are really filled by the Holy Spirit have their hands in the air all the time? Because they're experiencing resurrected power, I think. uh, And every year they just can't help it, man. It just explodes from out of them. It exploded into their relationships. It exploded into their families. It exploded into their small groups. It exploded into the deacon teams that they served on. It exploded in the worship services. It exploded in the ministry they did in town. It exploded in evangelism. It exploded in disciples. It exploded in generosity. It just, what started on the inside in the resurrection power made its way all through their beings into their relationships. And it's just a beautiful thing to be a part of. So here's the question I want to pose for us here today. Where is God initiating in your life to allow his resurrection power to have its way What old things in you need to die today so that Jesus can do something new in our lives? 
to bring about the resurrection power. I want to leave you with that, and I want to facilitate a prayer time if I can. 